I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians 2 and let me begin here this morning by reading our passage for us. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Every year we celebrate what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. The grand miracle. This is the miracle that we celebrate at Christmas time, known as the Incarnation. We'll be celebrating it here in a couple months. Lewis, in his book Miracles, says this, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. Jonathan Edwards said, the creation of the world was a very great thing, but not so great a thing as the Incarnation of Christ. One author calls the incarnation of the Son of God the fundamental doctrine of the Christian religion. The fundamental doctrine of the Christian religion. And why is it the fundamental doctrine of the Christian religion? Why is this miracle so great and so grand? Because in this miracle, the eternal God took upon Himself flesh, and became one of us. The God who is outside of time stepped into time. The God who has been fully God for all of eternity took upon Himself a human nature and lived among those He created. That's why Christmas is such an important holiday for you and I to celebrate. God became a man. And He did it so that He could save those who rebelled against Him. This is the grand miracle. And this is what we've been studying in Philippians chapter 2. As we've been looking at what's called the Christ him. Now last week we saw the attitude of Christ and the depths of his humility as he went from the heights of heaven and took on flesh and then went to the most humiliating place of all to a cross. He went to a cross. And it is this attitude of humility that Paul is calling us to have As we see in verse 5 of Philippians 2 where he says, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. We're called to have this attitude. What is the attitude that, that Paul is talking about there? It's the attitude of what? Humility. Humility. That we must humble ourselves as we seek to be unified as a church. As a church of Christ. We are called to humble ourselves and be Unified. Paul showed us Christ as the model of what it means to have this attitude of 
humility. Christ is the ultimate model for you and I. And just as Christ humbled himself to save wretched sinners like you and I, we must humble ourselves and consider others as more important than us. It is that attitude that will then produce unity in the body of Christ, which has been Paul's point in what he's been talking about since all the way back up in chapter 1 in verse 27 where he says this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. You are to be united. That's what Paul is desiring for the Philippian church to be. To be of one mind, one spirit, striving together to be united. That's what Paul wants for the church. And when all of us look to Christ and have our attitudes then reflect that of Christ and then act out like Christ acted, then we will have unity in the body. It's really that simple. Last time we saw how Christ modeled humility for us, both in his attitude and in his actions. And we saw the humility of Christ from an ethical perspective as we're encouraged then to act like Christ. But this morning we're going to look at the same passage and we're going to see it from a theological perspective. We want to look at it from a theological perspective. You see, often... Oftentimes, this is how people read this passage. They come here to the the Christ hymn, and they read it from a theological perspective because it is so rich in theology. We want to look at it from the perspective of the theological truth that's revealed to us here this morning. But we cannot forget the context in which this is written, right? Right? We can't ever forget the context. The context here is that we must be humble. Paul is calling us for humility. You and I are to be humble. Now if you remember from last week in verses 6-11, through 11, these verses 6-11 through 11 are one hymn. One hymn that Paul wrote called the Christ hymn. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 8 this morning, and we're going to see three headings there. First, the essence of Christ. Second, the emptying or kenosis of Christ. And then third, we're going to see the humility of Christ. Let's look first at what we'll call the essence of Christ. The essence of Christ. Look at verse 6. Notice what Paul says there. Who, although he existed in the form of God. Now, as we see the the who there, we know that coming right off of verse 5 where Paul says, which was also in Christ Jesus, we know then that the who that Paul is referring to there is none other than Christ Jesus himself. That's who he's talking about. And so in this, although Paul is setting out the thinking or the attitude of Christ, We also see who Christ is from a theological perspective. He's revealing to us who Christ is. As I said a few weeks ago in equipping hour, 
You have to get Christ right in order to be saved. Right? You have to get him right. Because if you don't know the Christ revealed in the Bible, then you don't know the Savior of the world. You have a false Christ. A different Christ. A different Christ who cannot save. And so we must understand the nature of Christ and what the Scripture reveals to us about Him. And this is very important for us to know, especially in light of all of the false teaching that has come throughout the ages. Teachings like the Ebionites who deny the divine nature of Christ and believe that He only received the Holy Spirit at His baptism. Or the Arians who are essentially the modern day Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus was the first and highest created being. They're not believers. Jehovah's Witnesses are not saved because they don't know the Christ of the Bible. Or the Gnostics, what we studied a few weeks ago in Equipping Hour called Docetism, who taught that Jesus only appeared as human, but denied that He had a true human nature. You believe that, you cannot be saved. Because you're believing in a false Christ, not the Christ of the Scriptures. There have been many, many more false teachings throughout the ages about Christ and who He is. But all that is to say that we must get this right. We must get it right so we don't end up in heresy like these other people have ended up in. False religion. They're heretics. We don't want to end up there. And so we must study this and know who Christ is. And what we see in our passage here before us is both the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. One person, two natures. One person, two natures. Fully God and fully man. This is what we call in theology the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Two natures, one person. The two natures of Christ, the divine and the human natures, in one person. But before the incarnation, when Christ took upon Himself a human nature, He was God, right? He's God for for all of eternity. He is God. In fact, that's what Paul tells us in verse 6. Notice what he says there, that He existed in the form of God. He, Christ, existed in the form of God. One commentator commenting commenting on the word existed says this, it points to Christ's pre-existent state, to the abiding nature of the pre-existent Christ. And Paul's whole point then is to show that Christ was eternally, continually, without interruption, and in an ongoing state of being fully divine. For all of eternity, and even in the incarnation, He is still fully divine. And even today, as He sits at the right hand of the Father, He is fully divine. How do we know that? 
Well, because Paul goes on and he tells us that Christ existed in the form of God. Now, what's interesting is that there are two words in the Greek that speak to some kind of form. Stay with me here. I'm going to get a little nerdy with you. Two words. Two words here for form. The first one is morphe, and the second one is schema. Morphe and schema. And both words are actually used in this passage. They're both used in the Christ hymn here. Here in verse 6, the word morphe is used. The same word is, is used also in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant. It's the word morphe. But in verse 8, it says being found in appearance as a man. That appearance as a man is the word schema. So you can see these two words that are being used here, morphe and schema, two very important words for us to know and understand. Let's start with the first one, morphe. Morphe means that which characterizes a given reality. That which characterizes a given reality or a form which truly and fully expresses the being that underlies it. It fully expresses the being that underlies it. That's morphe. That's form. So that Jesus was not just an external appearance as if he only looked like God, but he himself was and is truly God. That's what Paul is saying here when he uses this word morphe. His very nature or essence is is God. Jesus is God. Matt Waymeyer says, says it this way, Jesus possesses not only the characteristics of God, but also the very nature of God. That is his very nature. In fact, that's how the NIV translates this verse, who being in the very nature of God. So that is what morphe means. It's not just an outward appearance, but it speaks to the inward reality, to the very nature of who that person is. But schema is that which appeals to the senses and which is, here's the key word, changeable. That which is changeable. So here's the picture for you. Morphe is the form, essence, or nature of manhood. Or being a human being. You and I have the nature of a human being. Morphe, that's our essence. That's our being, who we are. And no matter what, you cannot change that. You can't change it. We are human beings, and we cannot become cats or dogs. Against what culture might tell you today. <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> you can't do that. You cannot change the morphe, the form. Morphe is your essence. It's who you are. You cannot change that. But schema is changeable. It's the outward appearance that can change and will change without affecting the morphe. Get that? 
The outward appearance that can change and will change without affecting the morphe, the essence, the nature. For example, you are a human being. That is your essence, your form, or your morphe. That cannot change. But at one point, every one of us in this room here were an embryo, then an infant, then a toddler, then a young boy or girl, then a teenager, then an adult. And if you aren't already, one day you'll be old. That is your schema. That's your schema. Your form or outward appearance. And it changes. But as it changes, it does not change your morphe, your essence, your being. What's the point here? The point is that Paul uses morphe when he says that Christ existed in the form of God. He's telling us that the essence, the being, or the nature of Jesus is God. He is God. And He has always existed in the essence or being of God. For all of eternity, He has existed as God. In fact, no one could be in the form, the morphe of God, who was not God. It's impossible. No one can be in the form of God who was not God. What is Paul saying here? Simply, Paul is saying this, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That is His essence. Notice the next part of verse 6. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now Paul just told us that Jesus has always existed in the essence of God, right? He's always existed that way. And now he tells us that Jesus is equal with God. Because He existed in the form of God. And so therefore He's equal with God. He's the very being of God. And therefore, he's equal with God. That word equality is the Greek word isis. And it means to be equivalent in number, size, or quality. In your geometry class, you learned about an isosceles triangle, right? We all learned about that. It's a triangle that has two sides of equal length. That's the picture here. Jesus is exactly equal with the Father. He's no less God. He is fully equal with God. But notice Paul tells us he did not regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to hold on to. One commentator says, he released his grip on equality with the Father and began sliding down the rope of humiliation. Christ had a perfect right to hold on to what was his, but he did not cling to his rights, but rather he let go of them with all five fingers. This doesn't mean he stopped being God, because it's impossible for God to stop being God, right? But he didn't regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped, something to hold on to. He didn't stop being God. He didn't release any of his attributes as God. He always continued to be God. 
But he didn't hold on to his rights as God. He didn't use any of his rights for selfish ends or selfish means. But he took action. Jesus took action. And what did he do? Well, let's move on to point number two. Tells us what he did here. Point number two, the emptying of Christ. He emptied himself. This is what we call the kenosis from the Greek word kanao. The kenosis of Christ. It's exactly what he says, what Paul says there in verse 7. But he emptied himself. Now, we know that he did not empty himself of being God. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God, right? So he didn't empty himself of being God. Because it's impossible for God to stop being God. And think about this. If Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't have been born of a virgin. If Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't have been able to create water from wine or food from nothing. You remember the feeding of the 5,000 and also the 4,000? He literally created food from nothing. Because he's the creator. Only God could do that. If Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't have been able to calm the storm or heal the sick or make a blind man see or raise the dead. If Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't have been able to read people's minds or forgive people's sins. If Jesus wasn't God, he wouldn't have risen from the dead and would still be in a tomb. But he's not. He's not in the tomb. Why? Because he's God. Because he's God. And as God, he never emptied himself of his deity. Never. And he didn't empty himself of his divine attributes. He didn't empty himself of his divine attributes. What's interesting is that in our closing benediction this morning, we're going to be singing the hymn, and can it be? I didn't plan this with Jim. This is the Lord. We're going to be singing this hymn, though, and can it be? When Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, and the third stanza that we'll be singing this morning, it says, emptied himself to show his love. Emptied himself to show his love. Well, Wesley, when he originally wrote this hymn, probably not intending to get the kenosis wrong, he wrote it this way. Emptied himself of all but love. But that sounds a lot like he emptied himself of all of his attributes except the attribute of love, right? And so the hymns of grace have corrected Wesley, rightfully so, and we will sing it theologically correct this morning as we sing, emptied himself to show his love. Because Jesus did not empty himself of all but love. He didn't empty himself of any of his attributes. So if he didn't empty himself of deity or of his attributes, what is this emptying that Paul's talking about here in the Christ hymn? 
Well, this is a self-emptying. It's a self-renunciation. Or a way that we could understand this is that he made himself insignificant. Christ made himself insignificant. In fact, the Greek word for empty is kanao, and it means to make void, to nullify, or to make of no effect. Christ nullified himself, or made himself of no effect. Or we could say, he made himself of no reputation. He made himself insignificant. In fact, you and I might look at somebody who's a a hot shot and then ask someone else, hey, who's that guy? And that person would reply, ah, he's a nobody. That's the concept there. That's Christ. He made himself insignificant. He became a nobody. That's exactly what Paul is telling us here. And again, the NIV translates verse 7 here as he made himself nothing of no significance. That's the idea here. But this emptying here does not mean that he poured anything out as if he was pouring something out of himself. That's oftentimes how you and I think of emptying, right? We're going to empty a cup, we're going to take it, we're going to turn it over, and we're going to pour something out of it. That's not what Paul has in mind. That's not what he's saying here when he's talking about Christ emptying himself. He did not pour anything out of himself. He didn't get rid of anything. How do we know? Well, because Paul goes on in this Christ hymn to tell us what this emptying entailed. Notice what he says. Two specific ways he emptied himself. First, taking the form of a bondservant... And second, being made in the likeness of men. Or we could say it this way. Jesus emptied himself. How? I'll tell you how. By taking the form of a bondservant and by being made in the likeness of men. And as we said last week, he emptied himself not by taking something away from himself, but by adding something to himself. That's his emptying. He added something to himself. The God of all creation added to himself a human nature. That should blow our minds. That should shock us. That the God of all creation would become a man just like you and I. He became flesh and bones just like you and me. This was his emptying or making himself nothing. He made himself nothing by adding to himself a human nature. And please note that that taking here does not imply an exchange, as if Jesus exchanged deity for humanity. As if he took upon himself taking humanity and therefore giving up his deity. That's not what Jesus did. He added humanity to himself. This taking here is an adding. He's adding humanity. Fully God adding full humanity. 
And so that's why we know and understand that Jesus had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. One person, two natures. Fully God and fully man. Now notice there in verse 7, there's that word form again. It says, taking the form of a bondservant. Again, that's the word morphe. And it means that which characterizes a given reality or a form which truly and fully expresses the being that underlies it. And what Paul is telling us here is that Jesus became a man. That's what he's saying here. Paul is using this word form here strategically as he's contrasting it with the previous time he used it when he said that Jesus existed in the form of God. And the morphe of God. Now he's saying, and the morphe of a bondservant, of a slave. That Jesus took upon himself humanity and became not just a man like you and I, but he came a man so that he would be a slave of men and serve us. Because he didn't come to be served, but to what? To serve. He wants to show us, Paul here wants to show us who Jesus was in eternity past and then what he became in the incarnation as he took upon himself flesh and bone. But notice he didn't just become a man, although that's what we see at the end of verse 8, being made in the likeness of man. But he became the slave of men, a doulos, a bondservant. Just as a slave submits to the will of another, Christ came to do the will of the Father. And everything that Christ did was always submitted to the will of the Father. He didn't do anything outside of the will of the Father. Whatever the Father's will was, that's exactly what he did as a slave. And he came to serve. To do the Father's will and to serve you and I. And so in this emptying himself and having the attitude of humility, Jesus became a man. In every way, he was a man. He didn't just appear to be a man as if he didn't experience the things that you and I experience as human beings. No, he experienced it all. All the things that you and I experience as a result of the fall, he experienced those things and yet was sinless at the same time. Being fully man, he experienced what you and I experience, which is exactly what Hebrews 2.14 tells us. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He also partook of the same flesh and blood. Then in verses 17 and 18, we read of Hebrews 2, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted, and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And here's the amazing thing, church. He was tempted in all things like
you and I are tempted, except his temptation was even greater than ours because his temptation was to the max. You get this? His temptation was to the max because did he ever give in to temptation? No, he never did. You and I, what do we do? We give in to temptation. We'll be tempted and then boom, we fall. Jesus never fell. And so his temptation was always to the max because he never sinned. So when you think, ah, I'm being tempted right now. This is too great. Ah, Jesus doesn't know what this is like because he never sinned. Oh, he knows it even greater because he didn't sin. And he was tempted and tempted and tempted and tempted and tempted all the way to the max and never ever sinned. And so as a man, he understands. Even to a, a greater degree. The suffering and the temptation that you and I go through. Christ became a man, a slave. And he, the King of kings and Lord of lords, with an attitude of humility, set himself aside to serve others. So how much more should you and I do that? To be like our Savior. To set ourselves aside so that we can go and serve others. To humble ourselves. One author said this, The real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God, never during the whole process stopped being God, could embrace such a vocation. He was the servant who emptied himself. And he emptied himself to serve you and I. He became a man to serve us. And so that's the emptying of Christ. Let's look now at our final point. Point number three, the humility of Christ. Paul now reminds us that Jesus was a man and then he tells us what Jesus did as a man. Being found, notice what he says here in verse 8, being found in appearance as a man. This is the incarnation. God became a man. And this is the Greek word schema that I was talking about earlier. This is the recognizable outward appearance that makes Jesus recognizable as a man. When people looked at him and they saw him, they saw him as a man. His essence was that of a man. And he was recognized in his outward appearance as a man. In fact, the Net Bible translates it this way. Sharing in human nature. That Jesus was sharing in human nature. The point here is that Jesus had a human nature. Not just the appearance of a human nature. As if he only appeared but didn't really have the nature of a man. No, he was fully man. One commentator says this, that the, the theological point being made is that Christ looked just like other men, but he was not like other men in that he was not sinful, though he was fully human. Christ became a man. 
And why is it so important that Christ became a man? For you and I to understand this great theological truth that Christ became a man, why is this so important for us? Well, because as a man, he was capable of obedience and suffering that was needed for our salvation. Listen to what the great theologian Jonathan Edwards says about this. He says, if Christ had remained only in the divine nature, he would not have been in a capacity to have purchased our salvation. Not from any imperfection of the divine nature, but by reason of its absolute and infinite perfection. For Christ, merely as God, was not capable either of that obedience or suffering that was needed. The divine nature is not capable of suffering, for it is infinitely above suffering. Right? Think about that. The divine nature does not suffer. Neither is it capable of obedience to that law which was given to man. The law is not for God. God is the one who gave us the law, right? But God is not under the law. God is the giver of the law. And so Jesus had to become a man so that he might be obedient to the law which was given to man. Edwards goes on and he says, It is as impossible that one who is only God should obey the law that was given to man as it is that he should suffer man's punishment. Edwards is saying that Christ had to be a man to obey and suffer for our salvation. He had to take on a human nature to be our representative. And therefore it was necessary that Christ take on not just a created nature like an angel... But he must take upon himself our nature, a human nature, so that he could be our representative. And so, being fully human in his incarnation, what did he do? Well, not only did he empty himself, but he also humbled himself. He humbled himself. We see that there in verse 8. And how did he do this? How did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His human will was in total submission and obedience to the Father. That's why he prayed in the garden. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Your will, Father. Your will be done. And the God-man, in total obedience to the Father, did not just die for us, but He went to a cross to die for us. Think about this. There were a lot of ways to die, right? Think about the martyrs. What happened to them? There's a lot of ways to die. But Jesus went to a cross to die for us. 
This form of execution was reserved only for slaves in Rome during this time. It was the execution of the lowest of the low. And what's interesting is that we will walk around today with gold chain and a cross around our neck, right? Representing the cross. And people will smile and they'll, oh, cross around your neck. Are you a Christian? In those days, they did not wear crosses around their neck. Because the cross was so despised. In fact, being nailed to a cross was so despised and so shameful that Cicero said this about it. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. But what shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. He's saying it is so disgusting, we don't even have a name for it. So low and so shameful to hang on a cross. We don't even have a word bad enough for it. In fact, Cicero said that a death on a cross was not only far from the bodies of the Romans, but it was even far from their imaginations because it was so bad. And that's how low our Savior went. He went to a cross. Being fully God and fully man. He hung on a cross for us. And He went to suffer and die for you and I. What's the theological significance of this? Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul is actually quoting Deuteronomy 21 verse uh, 23. He's quoting the law here. Notice what he says in Galatians 3.13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for who? For us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. And yet he was completely and totally innocent. Deserving none of it. Because he was totally and completely sinless. But he became a curse for us. He is our substitute. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. That he, being fully God and fully man, as a man, went to a cross. To become a curse for us. He became sin who knew no sin. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's the great substitution. 
And only a human could do that for us. That's why he had to be fully human. And Christ's humility is not just an example for us, but Christ's humility, listen church, is our salvation. Christ's humility is our salvation. All that Christ went through in His humility was not just to model humility for us, but it was to save us. He went this low to save you and I. It wasn't just ethical. It was theological. And the theology of Christ's humility should humble us, right? It should humble us. In closing, do we understand, comprehend, the theology behind the incarnation of Christ and how all of this works out? No. No, we don't. We don't understand. The greatest theological minds don't understand this. Do we, do we understand the hypostatic union and the two natures of Christ? Two natures, one person? No. We don't understand that. One author says the meaning of hypostatic union is much easier than the term sounds, but the concept is as profound as anything in theology. Jesus being fully God and fully man, how could he have two natures and be one person? Do we fully comprehend how all of this happens? No. But it's what the Bible teaches. It's what the Bible teaches. And if we understood it to its full extent, then we would be God. So what does this great miracle, this great theological truth of the incarnation do to us? I'll tell you what it should do to us. It should humble us. It should humble us. And as we're humbled by it, it should cause our hearts to be lifted up to the heights of heaven in praise and adoration for what God accomplished to save us. It's too great for us to comprehend. We can teach and understand this great theolo theological truth only to the point at which it is revealed to us. But beyond that, we can't comprehend it. It's too profound. It's too great. It's too grand for our puny minds to fully comprehend. Why? Because God is God and we're not. God is God and we're not. And this all works out in the mind of God. 
God fully comprehends it. He understands it all. This great theological truth should humble us and cause us to rejoice and give praise and adoration to our great God who knows it all. Father, we are amazed by this great, grand miracle of the Incarnation. We must admit that our puny minds do not understand the depths of this great truth. But Father, we believe it because it's what you've revealed to us in your word. Two natures, one person, Christ, the God-man, who humbled himself, took upon himself human nature to become one of us and to die on a cross the most shameful and humiliating way anyone could die. We thank you for this great and grand truth that you've revealed to us in your word. Father, I pray for anyone who's here this morning that does not know this Christ, the Jesus of the Bible, your Son, who humbled himself and came to a cross as a substitute for sinners like us. Lord, I pray that they would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins that they might be saved. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not stay dead in that tomb, but he rose again on the third day, and he lives today. And just as he rose on that third day, we one day will rise with him, and we will be glorified with him. Lord, help us to ponder these truths in our minds, and may our hearts rejoice and be glad for all that you have accomplished for us. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.